Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I will provide you with guests and information you're going to want to have whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. So now, let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. First, I want to thank everyone uh, who has supported Movie Beat over the past year. That goes for my guests and for my listeners and readers. The official Movie Beat website is rexsikes.com. That's my name, rexsikes.com. You can subscribe right there at the welcome page to the uh, website. And that way you'll always be updated to when there's a, a new interview, new cast and crew information, upcoming events, listings, things like that. So be sure to subscribe at the welcome page at rexsikes.com. Movie Beat is really designed to be a resource for you, and that is why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. Now, I have opened the chat room, so uh, if you have guest qu- uh, questions of my guest today, you can ask those in the chat room. Keep in mind, you can always contact us through the website in advance by emailing me with the guest name in the header and the question in the body of the letter. Um, you can send your questions in advance for upcoming guests. Guests who are upcoming are always listed in the interviews page. That's a, a blog, so it scrolls. Uh, you just go to the interviews page, look at the face, page, face plate. There's like five interviews there. And then there's an archive section down at the bottom. You go into the archives. You can click on the name of the, of the guest or the title of the uh, interview page, and uh, that will take you to uh, their biography page in which there is a link to the live interview and to archive interviews. So if you're at that bio page, you click that link. You can listen in live. Um, and as well, you can listen archive 24-7. These are also now available on iTunes. At the iTunes store, you can search Rex Sykes. You can search Movie Beat. You can search Rex Sykes Movie Beat and, uh, and subscribe there. And then you'll never miss an interview as they come up. So please do. And by the way, by the way, if you haven't heard all 70 of this year's interviews, if you haven't gone back and looked at that list and gone in and listened to – there are some fascinating guests and a lot of incredible information – definite what to's and what not to do's when it comes to making movies from from people you may know and people you may not know but go in go back and listen to them uh because they are here to help you with your projects um both in production and post-production and those that you've yet to make my upcoming guests uh after the first of the year is going to be we're going to start off on the 5th of january and by the way, happy holidays to everybody, happy close of 2009, and, and best wishes for a happy 2010. But right after the first of the year on the 5th, we're going to start off with uh, screenwriter-director Douglas Day Stewart. He wrote Officer and a Gentleman, Boy in the Plastic Bubble, Blue Lagoon, and many more. He directed Thief of Hearts, which he wrote, and he's got movies coming up that he's going to be directing this spring. Uh, after him is Patrick Girardi. He's post-production sound supervisor and re-recording mixer. We're going to talk about uh, that aspect of the business and the importance of ADR and how to get good quality sound. Peter D. Marshall is the director. He did the first AD director's 
first AD series, and we're going to do a director series as well. John Reese is the author of Think Outside the Box Office. He's going to be talking about hybrid ways of, of distributing your movie. Dallas Jenkins is a director who just directed Kevin Sorbo and Christy Swanson in a movie. Uh, Ted Hope is the independent producer of movies like The Tao of Steve with uh, our guest, uh, Donald Logg, who has been here, and, um, and 21 Grams, and, and many, many more. So they're coming up, and just a whole host of others are coming back. Jackie Birch, casting director, is coming back. Michael Sontag is a casting director. He's coming back. Uh, Kevin Sorbo, John Mendoza, Michael O'Keefe, um, and so many more. So stay tuned. Go back, listen to all the interviews that are there, and uh, and catch up if you haven't already. And then stay tuned for all the new ones that uh, are on the horizon. You'll be glad that you did. Um, a couple of events, especially local events. Uh, January 15th is Firestarter Films at Live Artist Studio in Milwaukee. That is from 6 till midnight or 5 till midnight. Uh, be sure to uh, uh, check them out at firestarterfilms.com. The Field Film Fest is uh, Saturday, February 5th at the UW Waukesha in Waukesha, Wisconsin. That, that's a film festival that Firestarter Films, myself, and the uh, UW Waukesha have put together and sponsored. So you're going to want to uh, check that out, um, too. So uh, those are a couple of local events that uh, we're covering. Uh, a shout-out to Firestarter Films for the completion of two documentary uh, films, uh, the 2009 making of the Milwaukee Film Festival, and uh, also their um, film festival, I'm sorry, their um, 48-hour film project, The Making of Last Chance. Uh, you can read more about that at my blog page at Rex's Rants. Uh, I got a couple of interviews up there that were written that were done with me on, on Massacre at Central High. There's so many Massacre at Central High fans out there, and the movie's somewhat hard to to get. You can you can find it, you can rent it, but it, it doesn't play much anymore. Uh, so there are a couple of interviews there for the fans, and go in and read about that. My guest today, I'm thrilled to have back, is Reed Martin of The Real Truth. He's an author, and his book is a, a must-have read. He has interviewed so many different people, and um, you know, this website is about what to do and what not to do, but that is what his book is about. He, he compiled uh, interviews with Danny Boyle, Kim Pierce, Werner Herzog, Ted Hope, Christine Vashon, Christopher Nolan, Doug Lyman, Barbara Koppel, Ken Burns, uh, and so many others uh, on what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies. And um, we've now done, this is our third interview at the end of the year. We're going to do a, a whole series next year as well. Uh, but I'm, I'm pleased to welcome Reed Martin because we're going to talk about what's important if you've got a film uh, showing at, say, an upcoming festival like uh, Sundance or Cannes or any film festival for that matter, what to do, what not to do, the faux pas you can make that can ruin your chances. Um, Reed, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Rex. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to hear your voice again and to have you back. And uh, I, this is quite an important topic, especially since uh, right after the first of the year, we've got a, a very important film festival coming up. That's right. Uh, Sundance uh, rolls into action, and uh, it's going to be a really exciting time for a lot of filmmakers who have been accepted and a lot of filmmakers who just want to go and see um, you know, the next wave of directors, screenwriters, and producers and what they have, have to offer. Absolutely. And, and when it comes to going to film festivals, whether you've got a film there or whether you're merely attending or whether you hope to at some point enter films and films, what, what is it about film festivals uh, that's important for filmmakers today? I mean, what, why, first off, do you even want to enter a film festival? 
Well, you know, a film festival really is the jumping off point to launch a film. These days, a film festival is a really important marketing platform because it really can do a great job of positioning a film in the marketplace. Um, it, you know, it, it allows uh, filmmakers to screen their films for a real live, uh, live fire audience, if you will. Um, it's sort of an accepting atmosphere where people are cinephiles and they're really excited about hearing new voices and giving people uh, a chance to tell their stories. And um, it can also uh, serve as sort of a, uh, as a screening audience that a studio might have to make a few tweaks and cuts and trims and changes. Um, you know, originally when Blair Witch was at Sundance, um, they, the, I guess uh, some of the characters were a little rough around the edges and people, you know, didn't really uh, cotton to one or the other, and so they made they made some trims and made people more sympathetic, and then uh, you know the film went on from there. So there are a lot of uh, important aspects to going to a film festival. Um, it can also, of course, be the place where a uh, film festival serves as sort of a market for American independent cinema, even though there's no formal official market at Sundance, um, and that's where films can are typically be bought. Uh, for a large multiple of what they cost to produce, so in many ways it's an important uh, it's an important place to to be for tomorrow's filmmakers. The, the most the, probably the most important thing um, about going to a festival these days is that they also serve as kind of an alternative cinema, an alternative uh, theatrical circuit for American independent film, which is being crowded out of the multiplex by you know 15 copies of Sherlock Holmes and uh, you know, Avatar and everything else running every 15 minutes, sort of a near video on demand model that is crowding out some of the, the, the art house and specialized films that used to mix things up at the multiplex and give people more options. I mean, if you look in the newspaper these days or if you look on Fandango or Movie Phone, it really is just the same five films playing in the heartland of, of the United States starting every 30 minutes. I mean, they really try to, to, to pack everybody in and get that foot traffic to buy as much popcorn as possible. So it. Um, so the thing is, we, I guess about. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say before we get into the uh, behaviors that can sabotage someone or or can uh, assist someone in being more successful, uh, I was going to ask you about. Uh, you know, some people seem to just say, "Okay, I got a movie. I'm going to submit it to every festival I can," and others seem to want to target particular festivals. Is there a, is there a, a wise strategy when it comes to? Uh, getting your films in festivals and, and where you should or shouldn't uh, uh, put your movies? Well, you know, that's a really important question you, you, you raise, Rex. I mean, some filmmakers, I'm sorry, some film festivals are exclusive. And so if you have screened your film somewhere else in a lesser festival, then you have uh, possibly just uh, botched your chances to show at another one, at another leading festival, because they want to have all premieres. So it's very important that you read the fine print and the applications to make sure that you're not... Um, screening somewhere else and disqualifying your chances of being in a major festival, even though your film would be great and be accepted at a major festival. So that's important. Um, and also there is sort of tonally, there, there are different, um, you know, there are different festivals that tend to do better with certain types of films, um, you know, and, and especially sort of seasonally, there's, there's an issue there. So, and also the deadlines. I mean, a lot of people are always, you always hear about people racing to get their festival cut locked. And in some cases, there are all these stories. When you go to a festival like Sundance, you hear about how people had to uh, 
had to rush what they call a wet print that was just uh, just just finalized, and then basically somebody is hand carrying it, uh, you know, through the airport and getting it up to to Park City just the day of the screening. And so there are a lot of really close calls that you hear about. Um, and that really speaks to to scheduling enough time for post and enough money for post, something I know we talked about in our previous conversation we'll be talking about again, I'm sure. So, um, you know, there, you really have to pay attention to festival deadlines and not really cut things down to the wire. Technology has allowed people to make all sorts of edits and last-minute changes and different passes and different versions and such on the Avid or, uh, you know, on Final Cut. And so people just sort of leave it to the last second because they think, well, you know, we can make a little more tweaks and changes and dial this up or dial that down or drop in this music or something. And, and so they really wait until the last second. I guess the thing, what we're going to talk about today, though, in terms of what can wreck your, your chances of getting a distribution deal at a festival is really sort of falls under the, the, uh, the headline or the, the, uh, the banner of, of manners, you could say. It's, it's sort of like, a, you know, treat other people as you want to be treated. But because of the excitement and the sort of frothy atmosphere and the altitude of Sundance certainly plays a part. I mean, you're, you're way up there in the mountains. And also, you know, the alcohol and the lack of sleep, they all sort of combine into this heady brew that, that sort of brings out the best and the worst in people. And it's something to really sort of make sure that you check yourself before you wreck yourself, as, as Ice Cube famously said. Um, you know, one of the things that happens is there are a lot of uh, opportunities uh, that people think they need to, to, to dive at, and it kind of, it kind of can, can create situations where elbows start flying, and it's something that people have to pay attention to. I mean, Sundance is a great venue. People are really excited. They want to, there's a sense of discovery. They want to find these new filmmakers and these new films, and they want to be entertained, and they want to give people a shot. And, and very often, they're cinephiles who are attending uh, you know, movies because they want to they want to be moved or they want to you know uh, have a, an experience that the that sort of mainstream American audiences may not uh, want to participate in, especially in this environment. So they're willing to see very challenging films. Um, there's a huge possibility for for gay and lesbian cinema, which there might not be out in the in the regular multiplex as well. And so it's a really exciting time. But you have to make sure that you're sort of on your best behavior because when you haven't slept and you're rushing around, and you're hungover, and, and, and then there's the possibility of, uh, of uh, a big money deal. Um, it, can, it can bring out uh, the werewolf in, in certain people. And I've seen that having attended Sundance three times for, for USA Today. Uh, one of the things that, that, um, that happens, I guess we'll just start in, uh, you know, the party situation. The parties are a big part of Sundance because it's a, you know, it's a chance to sort of cut loose and to uh, mingle with uh, the filmmakers of tomorrow, and there are all these really great, uh, you know, catered parties that are, th you know, sponsored by various um, distributors or producer reps or or whomever, or even the films. They're having sort of mini launch parties, and ultimately, what happens is because they're held in these sort of fancy restaurants that are on the main drag there, um, you know, there are lines to get in and people uh, sort of pushing their way to the front, and you have this sort of a mini microcosm of the L.A. velvet rope phenomenon, or maybe the, the sort of the downtown New York club scene. And so you have people who are pushing to get their way in, and they're cutting in line, and they're demanding to see the list, and they want to see the person with the clipboard, and don't you know who I am? I'm the you know director of so-and-so. And as I've said 
before, you know, once people, once their festival cut starts to cut together beautifully and once they start to feel like they really have a shot, very often they go from being the, the put-upon Nick Rev from, from Living in Oblivion played by Steve Buscemi and they start to transform, unfortunately, into uh, Francis Ford Coppola in Heart of Darkness uh, during the, the, the crazy days of trying to make um, Apocalypse Now. And that's something to really get a, a handle on because the person that the filmmaker may be cutting in line in or being rude to or elbowing aside or, you know, whatever, saying, uh, you know, fighting words to maybe in some cases an acquisitions executive or a producer, an important producer rep, or even a distributor. I mean, I've, you know, a couple of years back, there was a story in the newspaper about somebody getting into a shoving match with some old guy and then actually shoving him down to the ground. And the old guy that they pushed aside turned out to be Roger Ebert. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, they got into some into some big fight and then into a pushing match, and and it, it's just it was just like oh my god, you know, I mean, you wouldn't uh, not not even because he's Roger Ebert, but just because you know he's getting on in years, and it just it. But the thing is, you know, people are just uh, they just sort of get a sense of road rage. I don't really know wh- why that is, but it um, it's something to really to really. Uh, make sure that you're paying attention and minding your manners and, and, and sort of pretend that your, your parents are with you or actually bring your parents with you. I don't, I don't know what, uh, what people can do to get around that. But, um, keep an angel on your shoulder. Yes, keep uh, uh, two angels on your shoulder. And also the thing is to, to recognize that there's no one here's, – here's the thing, Rex. There's no one party that's so important to get into that's going to make or break your career. It's not like you have to get into the Zoom the big Zoom party every year that's sponsored by Synetic because that's where all the deals are going down or that's where this actor is that you want to somehow chat up or you know talk to and, and, and get this person cast in your next project. I mean, it, it's not festivals are where deals can come together and are where n- next films can get set up, and it is an opportunity to, to speak directly to actors who you may want to cast without having to run the gauntlet of their agents and managers. But <clears throat> there is no one person who will be responsible for getting your film made or financed, and there is no one actor who uh, has to star in your movie or else it, it, it'll come crashing down or it won't ever happen. And, and it's really that mentality, I think, that drives people to the sort of desperate, I have to get in, I have to do this, I have to be there type of mentality. They really have to get out of that. I mean, second, secondarily to that, you know, the food is really great at some of these parties, and, and, and that speaks to actually making sure that everybody on your production team has enough per diem uh, and money just to you know to to eat well. If if they're starving, that's another thing you can add into the mix of altitude sickness and lack of sleep and hungover and everything else that makes people crabby. Um, you know, being hungry literally is is another problem. So you have to make sure that everybody on your production team has at least like a thousand dollars per week to spend on food and dinners and things, so that they don't have to get into the the, the parties just to be able to eat. I mean, I've seen that as well. I mean, people just spend their last dime to be able to go to a festival and then, you know, they're they're thinking, "Okay, well, this is how I'm going to um I'm going to support myself while I'm there. I'm just going to make sure I chow at the uh, at the buffet line and that'll that'll be how I uh, how I eat my meals." That's something to be avoided. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I want to I want to say that, you know, we're discussing Sundance because that's next up, but the, but whether it's Cannes or Tribeca or Toronto or any film festival, I mean, you're giving important suggestions and important advice. I, I do want to return to to this concept that you raised though about, you know, treating people the way you want to be treated. 
there, there is something to be said that there's a lot of Hollywood show wealth, and, and you know who people are because they wear it on their sleeve. Not, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but, but you can see them in their suits and you know who they are. They're, but there's an awful lot of worldwide wealth that you don't know who they are, and they don't dress like millionaires, and they don't carry themselves at millionaire, like millionaires. They may even shop at Walmart because some of them do. You know, I mean, and and you don't recognize them. And when, when you talk about pushing someone down like Roger Ebert, regardless of who it is, you know, you are hobnobbing with lots of different people, and you and you you know you make the point you should treat them all respectfully because uh, you don't know. I, I I may have talked about this before in the movie, but but just a quick aside, and that was uh, I used to go into Schwab's every you know and and have lunch, and I went in with a friend of mine who's you know a movie star. And, we were going to the counter, and he looked at this guy sitting there unshaved and unkempt and goes, I don't want to sit next to that derelict. And so I ended up next to the guy, and he sat to my left, and, and then I get a closer look at who this guy is, and it's Roy Scheider. Wow. And uh, he was unkept and unshaven because he was preparing apparently for a role, and then so we started talking, and then my friend was all disappointed because he didn't get to sit next to Roy, and I did. But but because he looked at this guy and went, you know, he doesn't he looks like a derelict. I don't want to sit next to him. You know, he lost that chance, and I, and I, and I just – you know, I always tell people, treat everybody like gold. And, and one of the things that you said, too, is that when I think when you go to a film festival, too often what happens is you're there because you want to succeed and you've got that attitude. And so you're there to try and take everything you can, you know, and to get everything you can and to meet everyone you can. And what people need to start thinking in terms of is, is offering value to the people around them instead of taking from them because most people who we do business with are going to look at you and go what what do you have for me well you know the thing is also that it's part you know the part of the part of the going to the festival has been lost because people do think of it as a market they do think of it as their chance to sell their film for a million dollars and to ascend into the pantheon of hollywood royalty even though they are keeping it real and even though they want to um you know fly the flag of independent film and and be filmmakers and, and not be sellouts, but they, they still somehow in the parallel alternate reality that they're living in, they, they want to and expect to get a $10 million Hamlet to Sundance sale. Um, and so they're really kind of, there's, a, there's kind of a gold rush and a, um, a, a, I guess it's, what's the film with Humphrey Bogart and he, they're, uh, they're out in the desert or something, and they're trying to... Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Yeah, there's a Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I would recommend that everybody rent or or stream the Treasure of the Sierra Madre before they go, because there's kind of a, you know, there's this Humphrey Bogart starts to go a little bit bananas in that movie and get really paranoid, and that that's part of it. And, and also, as you said, Rex, you really never know who anybody is. I mean, not only are people dressed in, you know, parkas and North Face jackets, and so you're not going to really recognize them in their suits, but... Sometimes you just don't know who people are. I mean, I have made this mistake myself, not being rude to somebody, but I went to see uh, Layer Cake um, at Sundance a number of years ago. And, um, you know, before and after the film, I had a chance to chat up Daniel Craig. And at the time, he was just some guy. He wasn't Daniel Craig, James Bond. He wasn't one of the you know, big movie star. Right. He was just this blonde guy with a British accent dressed in a, you know, whatever uh, parka he was wearing. And you know, uh, I didn't really think much, very much of the guy. So I just sort of like, hey, what's up? You know, and then this was my chance to have talked to Daniel. Imagine if you could spend, you know, three hours hanging out with Daniel Craig. I mean, today that would be a really exciting prospect. But at the time it was like, hey, so have you seen any good movies? I mean, you know, so you really have to um, make sure that you're not dismissing the next Chris Nolan or the next Kim Pierce or the next Miranda July just out of hand. And 
Um, it's a great place to get contacts, and people should look at it as an opportunity to meet people and get business cards and, and immerse themselves in a filmmaking community and not really think about, okay, you know, how are we doing? How are we doing in terms of selling our film? How are we doing in, in terms of racking up contacts? And, and also there's sort of this, some people, some other people have this whole thing where they think they're going to put on this sort of a pose like, um, it's really, if anyone's seen the documentary Overnight about Troy Duffy and Boondock Saints, they think that, that by taking on this kind of, uh, excuse me, auteurist type of pose that that'll somehow convey to people that they, are, they have some kind of gravitas or that they are a director with a capital D. It's really not about that. I mean, it's about the film. It's about whether or not, um, you know, the movie is entertaining, whether or not people can tell a story cinematically. And, and really, you know, people should just sort of think about, uh, you know, Jason Reitman and, and, and Up in the Air. I mean, you know, if you watch some of the interviews that are on movieweb.com with, with Jason Reitman, you know, he, he's somebody who wouldn't act like that and, and certainly who, you know, he looks the part in terms of the film director, but he's not somebody who's arch and who is, you know, um, talking talking down to people. And yet you still have you still have that at festivals where people who have never been to Sundance before walk around as if they own the place and even condescend to people during the Q&A, like they're talking about how they design this masterful shot or something like that. And they really... I mean, it's just kind of odd how, uh, I, I, you know, they, people always say that the altitude affects people. But, um, you know, I mean, if, if, if somebody's asking a question at a Q&A after the film and, you know, the person is coming off like a jerk, well, then the acquisitions executive who was going to wait to talk to that person after everybody left may decide, you know, screw this. I don't want to deal with this person. I don't want to be in bed or in business with this person for two years while we're trying to get the film uh, prepped and ready for distribution. Um, and so, you know, that's another way that people can blow their distribution chances. And I talk about that in my book, The Real Truth. There's, I have a, a whole section on the top ten distribution deal breakers in that chapter. And, and we have discussed some of those, and we'll come back and discuss them. And there's also a whole lot of myths around film festivals that I want to discuss at another time. Um, but suffice to say, um, in Hollywood, I, I think if, if you've lived in the in, inside the motion picture industry, you understand it a little bit better. Hopefully, you do. Whether you're in Hollywood or in Australia or in New York or somewhere in Canada, you know, but somewhere where you've been inside the business, you understand that most overnight success is a 15-year journey. And we used to always joke that the nicest people were the people at the top, oftentimes, and the people sometimes in the bottom or the middle range, get you know, beginning to work their way up, were the biggest jerks. Um, you know, people like to do business with people they like, and, and there's a tendency, and this has been verified, you know, through science and surveys and tests over and over, that people tend to say yes to people that they like. doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to because any number of factors can, can bring up a no, but, but likability is a huge part of being successful. Now, some people will work with people who are unlikable now because they have name value, you know, or they're, or they're reportedly difficult because, you know, th th they made – they they made that bed with them at one time, but but it is infinitely easier to um, to be successful if people like you and because uh, they want to. And so those are very very important points that you make. Well, that's right, Rex. I mean, also you know, buying a film at a festival is a gut decision by an acquisitions executive. It's a really emotional decision where they are deciding, you know, is this film? Do I have? What is my feeling about this film? Do I think I can sell it? Do I think this person is saleable as a director? Do I think that I can put them out? Uh, in front of uh, audiences and interviews and things like that, and will people respond? Um, and, you know, it, it, there's a whole bunch of factors that go into that, and, and the personality of the people who made the film 
um, is is can be a big contributing factor. And the other thing about festivals, which is really important that people forget, is that you know Sundance is a very small geographical area. I mean, the festival is held at you know five or six theaters, sort of spread out around town, and in some cases in Salt Lake City, people make the drive to for special screenings. But what happens ultimately? is you keep seeing the same people over and over and over again. So somebody that you slight or elbow or jostle or insist to see the list or you know somebody who uh, you may dismiss out of hand, you're going to run into that person probably 20 or 30 times, not even kidding, uh, dozens of times before the festival is over. And the worst part, if you remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off when uh, Ferris goes behind the house to look for the key that's under the mat and then there's the principal uh, standing there with the key in his hand, that can play out at festivals very often where some, somehow somebody who uh, a director or producer was rude to who was holding a clipboard then turns out to be their banker because they are guarding the list or guarding the velvet rope to something that they really do legitimately want to get into. And if they were nice to that person or something and they aren't on the list, then, hey, no problem. They'll let you in. But if not, they're like, sorry, can't help you. You're not you're not a guest. You're not an invited guest of this event. So. Um, it very often being being nice to people can can pay huge dividends. And one of the things that I used to do is I used to go to um, an electronic store like Best Buy, and I would get you know some fairly decent uh, replacement Sony headphones. I mean, this is kind of my own little gag, but I would get some $15 sort of earbud type iPhone iPod headphones, and I would just have them for people who hooked me up. Because invariably at a festival, you need people to smooth the way for you in, in any dozen number of ways. And anybody who helped me out, I'd be like, hey, here's something, a little present. Thank you for helping me out. I mean, cool. you can't give people cash, obviously, because that would be really pretentious. But, you know, something useful and something cool and something that's decent. I mean, I wouldn't get the junky ones. But, you know, you give them something nice like that. And it's like, oh, wow, thanks. That's very cool. And so, you know, you hook people up here and there, and they remember you. And not only that, but, you know, you end up seeing the same people next year and the year after that. And maybe these people rise to important positions of prominence, either within the festival or within their respective companies. And it's a great way to establish relationships. I mean, it's another thing that people forget to do, which is to write thank you notes. I mean, you get business cards from people who help you out or people that you want to possibly work with in the future. And then, you know, writing a thank you note saying, on paper, not just an email, you know, writing an actual letter to people goes such a long way these days because nobody ever does it. You know, and saying, hey, it was great meeting you at the festival. It was cool hanging out. I hope to see, you know, work together. Or maybe you have some mutual friends or, you know, we should link up on Facebook or LinkedIn. And so that's really how people should approach it. The, the biggest news for people to, to cut down on the bad behavior is that there are no really big deals going on anymore. Even, even though the last couple of years have seen a huge, tremendous drop in the volume and price of, of deals that are flying at festivals for film acquisitions and for, for minimum guarantees, everyone thinks, well, now it's going to change. The economy is turning around and this is the year that the, 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 big, the big minimum guarantees are going to come back, and our film is so good and so commercial that, that we're going to get one. And that's a big shock to a lot of people. Those huge $10 million, $5 million, $4 million deals are really a thing of the past. Minimum guarantees these days, people are lucky if they can get $200,000 or $500,000 up front for their films. And I talk about this in The Real Truth, how those minimum guarantees are actually non-recourse loans that have to be recouped out of the box office grosses of their film. So it's really important to recognize that um, you know, having a great relationship with your distributor and um, everybody else involved in getting the film into a theater is absolutely critical. 
Well, when we talked, and I'm going to have to take a break in just a moment, but when we talked, when I mentioned and what we've been talking about is that, you know, an overnight success is the 15-year journey. Um, the, the, the truth of the matter, or the real truth, we should say, is, is that it is about relationships and nurturing relationships and cultivating those relationships that, that, again, people say yes to people they like because they have a relation with them, they wish to do business with them. And, and what you have said about the kind of faux pas that happen up at, uh, at the altitude, I venture to say happen at sea level you know, just as frequently. You know, they happen in Hollywood, they happen in Toronto, they happen in Australia, they happen in New York, they happen in Milwaukee, they happen around the world. Because filmmaker communities, wherever they are, are small. Hollywood is a small industry, even if it's made up of hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, the film business in Milwaukee is a small industry made up of X amount of people. So we do encounter these people over and over again, and that festival is a microcosm of what goes on you know, during the rest of the year. It's highly intense. It's, it's probably well attended by important people, and it's got lots of money, and, you know, and there are all of these, you know, opportunities for three, four, five days or so. Um, so it's accentuated. But, it, but, it, but these, the very same practices that you were talking about, I think, go a long way uh, the rest of the year outside of festivals and your everyday practices. And so I appreciate what you're saying. Let me take a short break and, and, and then come back and let you respond. Um, you are listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is rexsykes.com, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. We appreciate your comments and your support about the blogs and the articles and the conversations. So please feel free to email me through the web. Uh, any, any, any contact, any questions for my guest, uh, people who wish to send books or programs or DVDs and screeners and that kind of thing, please contact me through the web. I appreciate getting those. And uh, um, if you hear about something coming up before I do in terms of an event somewhere worldwide, please uh, email me and I'll investigate it and try and get it up in a timely fashion. Just always leave me enough lead time. You can leave comments if you're listening to this live. You can uh, friend us. You can make us a favorite. That is always goes a long way. Uh, to uh, You can review it at iTunes. Review the shows at iTunes. Uh, that goes a long way in helping spread the word. And by the way, I appreciate it when you retweet about my guests because that promotes them, it promotes the show, and it helps others to find out about it. So do retweet Facebook, MySpace, your favorite means. Uh, you can join us on Facebook as a Rex Sykes Movie Beat fan uh, or the group. But... Uh, uh, but be sure that you do, I and again, I sure appreciate it. So I'm coming back to uh, my guest, Reed Martin, author of The Real Truth. So thank you, Reed, for being patient during that. Uh, uh, station ID. <laughs> yeah, station ID. <laughs> um, you know, you. so let me ask you this. Um, I'm a filmmaker. I've got a slew of DVDs in my coat pocket. I've got a... Sc a stack of scripts under my arm, and I'm going to the festival, and I've got my food coupons, and my, and I'm ready to, to hit the thing. And now I see all these people out there, and I got all this stuff that I can get into their hands. Right. I mean, that's a really good, important point. I mean, you know, festivals. You, this is something that people forget. I mean, you have to actually market your film at a festival. That's something that people don't realize. The fact that you got into a festival doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to show up for your screenings. I mean. Very often, uh, because of the geometry of Sundance or Cannes, you have to be at various theaters uh, since the, the, everything is booked so close together uh, in terms of timing. You know, you have to get from one side of town to the other uh, very quickly, and, and very often it's just very difficult to do. So you're under the gun. You have to be ten places at once. Um, maybe you have to drive into uh, into Salt Lake City to to see a, a film screening there, and just logistically, it can be it can be kind of difficult to 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 do that. And 
so what people have to do is they have to make sure that their films are marketed at the festival to make sure that people have them in pole position and have them as the priority film that they want to see. Otherwise, they'll just say, you know what, I'm just going to go grab a drink with this colleague of mine or friend, and I'll catch it later, or I just won't catch it at all. And that can be a very kind of scary thing to have a screening at a festival and, you know, audiences don't necessarily show up. And so what happens at, at festivals, especially like Sundance, is that you have filmmakers putting up these sort of lost dog lime green flyers on every flat surface, you know, kind of papering the town with, uh, you know, with uh, one sheet, sort of Kinko's yellow, bright, ultra bright yellow copies of their one sheet uh, all over the place, and then other people come along and staple over those, and so, and then other people are rushing off to the hardware store to buy a staple gun or some glue or whatever it is, and so it becomes this kind of uh, this war of attrition of putting up uh, flyers and posters all over the place in bathrooms, on the mirrors, in the in the restrooms, and things like that, um, and it really reaches a sort of obnoxious escalation, and that's really not how to publicize your film at a festival. I mean, if you're having the 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 lost dog flyer attrition war, then you've already lost. The, w the way to get people to see your film at a festival is to hire a, f a formal, proper PR firm, somebody like Fat Dot or um, MPRM, or you know, there's any number of big names that you can that you can hire, and have them publicize the film, have them set up interviews at the festival, have them get you some coverage, um, and and really kind of generate some buzz and some heat in many ways uh, around your movie. I mean, a lot of people also, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, have gloves or T-shirts, you know, but if you print up all sorts of T-shirts for people with your film, your film's name on it, no one can see them because they're under 15 layers of clothing. So that very often is a waste of money. They're handing out T-shirts to people, but, you know, <laughs> to what end? Um, you know, so people will make those, uh, those knit caps or like a toque or something, and they'll have the name of the film along one side of it or production jackets, um, or they'll be handing out flyers. And, you know, it really kind of reaches this aggressive uh, type of thing. And, and it, to your point about I don't want to speak next to this derelict, I mean, that's the kind of thing. People have to really take a daily uh, barometer of, of where they're at and how they're, how they're interacting with people. Because even though they would think uh, poorly of, of, say, a homeless person rushing into the, the buffet line at Sizzler, very often they themselves are piling their plates high at a buffet line at a, at a at a fancy party at Sundance rather than, you know, making two or three trips to the, the buffet line, you know, as they finish what they've got on their plate. And there's also this other kind of a concept where somewhere there's a better party to be in. It's kind of a high school type of mentality, but you definitely get this in L.A. and you definitely get this at Tribeca, where the thought is that Somewhere else is where the distributor is, or somewhere else is where the actors are, or there's a, just a, be there's a better party somewhere. I don't know where it is, but we should go find it. And so rather than finishing the conversation with the person they're talking to, people will just you know, say, uh, you know what, they'll just be sort of abrupt and rude to people and, 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 and leave the party they're at and you know, end up on some all-night trek like, like uh, Griffin Dunn in After Hours looking for a better bash where there's cooler people or different layers of exclusivity. Or at Sundance, maybe there's a party up in the hills, you know, up in Deer Valley. People always talk about these mystical, mythical uh, bungalows and, and cabins that people have. And, and somewhere up there is where the real entourage is happening. And that's really not the point of it. I mean, people should be mixing and mingling with their fellow filmmakers, either accepted or not. Because again, as you said, Rex, you never know who somebody's going to be, who the next Chris Nolan is going to be. And people should also remember that 
that following the first film by Chris Nolan, which everyone should should get on Netflix and, and, and rent, did not premiere at Sundance. It was actually at Slamdance. So people shouldn't look down their noses at people from Slamdance who come over to the Sundance gatherings and who somehow are treated like uh, party crashers because Slamdance is, is very much a legitimate festival and it's also uh, a festival that's discovered some some huge names in the industry in the independent film world now. And it's also just a, in some ways a much cooler, much more accepting vibe than the elitist, you know, competitive um, nature that Sundance has had historically. I mean, Sundance is moving back to its roots now that it's um, sort of under new management um, and it's, it's making a shift uh, more toward uh, left field and, and toward uh, alternative voices and not being so movie star focused. But Again, I mean, there, there has to be an acceptance and a brotherhood and a sisterhood of filmmakers rather than this thing of, of uh, crabs in a barrel or I me mine. I want, uh, first I want to acknowledge uh, After Hours with Griffin Dunn. I have, uh, and, and while it took place in, 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 in the Manhattan area, the Soho area, I have always said that that was what life in Hollywood was like on a daily basis, that that's what the film industry and dating and the whole, <laughs> so uh, the fact that you brought that up uh, tickles me. Um, but I want to ask you this. Um, I'm an actor. I've got my headshot and resumes. I'm a writer. I got my screenplays. I've just made a movie. It's yet to be distributed. I got my DVDs. What's the best way to go about getting that in the hands of people who might be interested or or what what God forbid what faux pas are there that I might make? Right. Well, you know, because some deals are set up at Sundance and because you'll read in the trades, you know, you you go to breakfast the next morning, you'll read in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, which somehow magically appear in, in Park City in, in huge stacks. Can um, I interrupt you one second? Yes. Just because somebody asked on the chat room, what was Chris Nolan's first film? Well, it was. I think he actually made a film before Following that, did, that never got distribution, but oh, his first film is, is Following. There was a film before that, which uh, I don't think saw the light of day, actually. But Following, okay, uh, following predates Memento. I apologize for interrupting your train of thought. I just thought that, that because it was mentioned and somebody, you know, oh, sure. asked that question. Sure, no, absolutely. Okay, so I'm sorry, continue. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so people are at a festival and they read in the trades how a deal was set up and they, they read how so-and-so, who they may have just saw walking down the street the other day, because when you're at Sundance or Cannes, I mean, you see people walking down the street. There's no way to avoid it. I mean, you're just, you're there in the mix with everybody. There's two main thoroughfares and everybody has to pass by a certain way or you may be sitting next to them in a restaurant. And um, <laughs> you have to resist the urge, if you can, to say, oh, I love your work, because you're probably the 50th person to say it uh, to them that day. But, you know, it is an opportunity to get photos of people, and it's fun. I mean, I always wanted to meet, uh, um, I'm sorry, the, 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 the actor who was in uh, Salvador, James Woods, was a huge hero of oh, mine okay. when I was in journalism school. And so I was able to, to get a photo with James Woods one, one year, which was great. But the thing is, if you are an actor and you're at Sundance, um, you really have to let the work speak for itself. I mean, it can't, you can't be going around palming your headshot in, in, in everybody's hands or in director's hands because they're really not there for that. They don't want to carry a photo of somebody around all day. And if you turn around and see them throw it in the garbage, it's going to be absolutely heartbreaking. Rex, I have 50 stories of, of meeting my heroes, my cinematic heroes, and people who I really admire and having not a great conversation with them either because I was a little bit 
<laughs> you know, too gushing or they were a little frosty and it just ruins it. I mean, there are people whose movies I just can't watch anymore because I just cringe about what I might have said in my desire to be clever or witty or, you know, or just that they were distracted and not giving me, uh, you know, as much attention as I would have liked. So it can be risky meeting your heroes. But in terms of trying to get other gigs, if you're an actor and you see a big director or something and you rush up to them and you say, I'd really love to be in your next project and here's my headshot, you know, that's really not necessarily the way to go about it. I mean, if for an actor, maybe, okay, you might be able to charm somebody. That's fine. There's some leeway there. But if you're a screenwriter, here's where it gets really dangerous. Palming your script on somebody on the street is incredibly, incredibly dangerous as far as protecting your screenplay goes because even if you have it copyrighted and even if you have it registered with the WGA, and I talk about this in The Real Truth in a chapter about protecting your intellectual property, copyright in the screenplay arena is based on the totality of the work. It's not individual. So it's not the same way as having a song in a film. If you have a song in a film and uh, you're not authorized to use it, you can be sued and you'll lose because your song's in the movie and, it, and, and the use of copyright in, in music is a permissive right, so you have to have permission. But copyright in the screenplay arena is based on the totality of the work, and you can look this up on www.copyright.gov. And what that means is that, unfortunately, um, a screenplay that an aspiring screenwriter hands to somebody on the street can be essentially cherry-picked of its best elements without violating the copyright of that registered screenplay. Now, that sounds crazy, and people don't want to believe it, but it's true. In other cases, aspiring screenwriters have sent the film, I'm sorry, sent the screenplay to themselves in a certified envelope because they think that this triggers poor man's copyright. But again, if you go to www.copyright.gov, poor man's copyright is a myth. It doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. There is a copyright that exists once you finish writing something, and you can leverage that copyright by selling it uh, to somebody or by you know, using it to, to, to make the film. But if you want to actually take somebody to court for violating your copyright, you have to have registered this finished property with the Library of Congress because that's what triggers the action of the court, and it's also what triggers the legal right to get lawyer's fees, which is what allows an attorney to take a case on contingency. And people don't understand that distinction. Even though I'm saying okay. that there's no such thing as poor man's copyright, every single person and everybody's parents always says, well, did you mail a copy to yourself and then not open it? Everybody, for some reason, believes that there's such a thing as poor man's copyright, but it, it, it's not. It's a mythical thing. It's like a unicorn or a snuffleupagus. There is no such thing as poor man's copyright. And the, the, the punchline of, of the import of this part of the conversation is that people are very reckless with handing out their screenplay to people. They're very reckless with emailing it as an unlocked – they don't even send it as a PDF. They send it as an unlocked Word document. They're like, oh, yeah, email me a copy of your script. I'll take a look at it. So they email it to people. They think that's a fortuitous encounter, and it's actually a disaster because, unfortunately, it can leave them open to having some of the most creative and compelling bits of their, of their script uh, poached or, or used without their permission. Well, I, I, a personal anecdote. Uh, as a young screenwriter in my 20s, uh, I wrote a screenplay with a, a friend at the time, and uh, it was very well received. I mean, in, in 
the circles in which we were traveling and trying to get it produced uh, at the time. It was going to be about a $2 million movie, a low-budget movie at that time. And uh, and ultimately, it did not get produced. And I have seen, and we we sent the movie, you know, the screenplay all over town. People had it. We got all sorts of accolades for it uh, when it didn't get produced. And it had a great hook for the time. Um, and it was a murder mystery horror film kind of thing. And I have seen that movie. I've seen uh, exact scenes in in multiple films ever since. You know, and I and I and I just went, well, you know, such is life. Um, there's nothing I can do about it, and nothing that I tried to do about it. But uh, you know, it was disappointing because it was a, a film that I had hoped would be made by me as opposed to by all sorts of other people. Well, but that's that's a great point that you make, Rex. But the the, the other thing about it is that the the real way you're not. You're not for real. If you're walking up to somebody at the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, or if you're walking some, up to somebody in line at the Lemley Sunset Five, or if you're seeing somebody on the street at a festival and you're palming your script on them, you're not for real. And the line comes from, you know, rent to live and die in L.A. You know, Willem Dafoe has a whole thing about if you can't come up with the money for the deal, you're not, you're not, you're not really uh, credible. And and it's the same thing at a festival. If you're if you're walking up to somebody and, and you see your favorite actor and you say, "Hey, I'd love you to be in this because you heard about how Dylan Kidd was able to cast Campbell Scott in his film Roger Dodger by running into him in a coffee shop." I mean, that is one in a million. That is the one Dylan Kidd out of everybody who's ever palmed a script on somebody. And that is not a business model to follow. And you can't filmmakers who go to festivals get it in their heads like, "Well, this is how so-and-so did it, or this is how Waitress got produced, and this is how this other film got made, and then they think that that's a viable path because you know it, it really is catch-as-catch-can. But palming a script on somebody is an incredibly dangerous uh, thing to do, and it's also, it makes the person just look like a, a goonball. I mean, there are, you, you see at the end of a Q&A after, um, after a screening, there's always five or six people milling around the, the director or the producer after the screening, and it's because they have scripts in hand, especially at Tribeca. This is a big one at Tribeca because at least Sundance is hard to get to because you have to drive into the mountains to get there. But at Sundance, I'm sorry, at Tribeca, every writer in New York brings a copy of their screenplay under their arm or in their satchel, and they want to palm it on the director at the end of the Q&A session. And it's just, it's just desperate and bad manners. The, the thing to, that you do need to do, if you have a short film playing at a festival like Sundance, you do need to have your feature script with you because you may get a huge big-name producer comes up to you and says, as in the case of Napoleon Dynamite, which started out as a short film, producers came up to the director and producer of that film and said, hey, this short is great. Do you have a feature-length screenplay based on this Napoleon Dynamite character? And they said, yes, we do. Here it is. Boom. And then, you know, that was <laughs> they were on their way. So you do need a copy of your script in case somebody asks you, you know, what are you working on next? But you really have to go through traditional channels. You have to go through an agent. You need to have representation. You need to have an agent who's going to send the script. And the answer should not be, yes, here's my script. You can have it. It should be, what's your contact information, and I'll have my agent send it to your assistant. Absolutely valid advice. I appreciate that so much. Um, I, I want to uh, address something. When I, when I talked about my screenplay, we didn't palm it on anybody. Those went through appropriate channels, and it still has been lifted. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing when things happen out there, but but that's it's, it's which right there have stuff ready if they ask you, but uh, you know don't don't approach them and try and hand it. I mean I, the, the thought of a, you know if, if if I were a popular director if 30 people came up and gave me a screenplay, a screenplay what would I do at a festival carrying around 30 screenplays? So 
you know you you have to kind of take into consideration the other person i have I have a theory about this and it it goes to dating it goes to mating and and it goes to sex actually and that is that people at a party you you know you if you see somebody and you go god that's my mate for life and you walked over to them and said marry me on the spot uh they'd probably tell you to get lost well that's the thing yeah, i mean people can smell desperation protocol right yeah it's it protocol. is protocol and and there is kind of a romance to it i mean you want to have you want to sort of build a relationship with people and you want to let the work stand on its own if you're in a festival you you know you really want to let your film uh, do the talking in some cases. Um, you know, where this also comes into into play is that people, again, they think that this is their one shot. They think this is their one chance. This is the one time I'm going to run into this person and they will just, you know, they'll, people, what they'll often say is, will you read the first five pages and then get back to me? Or just read the first scene and then, you know, you'll you'll be hooked. Or they have excuses for their bad behavior or palming a script on somebody. And it just looks, it just makes you look crazy and desperate. Another thing that people will do at Sundance, which is something that, that, that is also bad form, and this happens a lot. I mean, it sounds nutty, but people who aren't in the festival, people who haven't been accepted into the festival, will truck up to Sundance regardless with a copy of their film that didn't get accepted, and they'll stand around with like a preloaded iPhone, or what you used to see are people with these sort of DVD player, these sort of one-piece uh-huh. DVD players for the kids in the, in the, uh, in the minivan. So they'd have like a one-piece DVD player, and they'd be holding it and standing out front of, um, of, a, of a venue, and people are standing online to get into the theater, and they're sort of walking up and down the line trying to show people a scene from their film or try to show people the whole film. And I mean, it's just, it's lunatic. I mean, it's like, it really makes them look like a crazy person. I mean, if somebody was doing that on the streets of New York, you would think, okay, that person's nuts. But at a festival, somehow people think this is legitimate. And I talk about this in The Real Truth, People have this misperception that Boys Don't Cry was sold off a 20-minute sizzle reel. And that's actually not the case. I mean, the, the reticence that people had about Boys Don't Cry was whether or not the central role would be convincing. And so really all they needed to see was whether or not that was the case, and then, they, and then the offers would start flying. So people have this misperception that all you need to do is see 20 minutes of a film, so we're going to take our Blu-ray player and surreptitiously patch an HDMI cable into the big screen TV in the lobby of some hotel <laughs> and then drag over some acquisitions executive who we may have recognized from uh, an article in Variety or The Hollywood Reporter and have them watch 20 minutes of it and then we'll sell our film. And that's, that's a viable avenue. That's what they think. And it's, it's just not. It just makes people uh, seem crazy. And there's, there's just a lot of that. I mean, there, you know, there's thrusting of preloaded iPhones into people's hands with grungy, disgusting earphones that they may have been wearing for weeks. And it's just like, it just gives the whole festival this, this nutty atmosphere of having to navigate all of this, this, this desperation. And it's just, um, people should go to festivals to enjoy new films and hear new voices and just enjoy cinema and have a good time um, and not make it this make or break thing. I mean, but it, it turns into that because when people are spending their last dime to get to Park City, they're sleeping like cordwood, you know, 15 people to a room on the floor of a freezing cold apartment that they've rented. Um, you know, it's almost like they need a St. Bernard among them to, to, keep, to keep everybody warm. Um, you know, it, it can take on this aspect of, of just uh, of do or die, and it really shouldn't. 
Well, I, I think you know, we've got just about three minutes left here, Reed, and uh, and you'll be back in 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 uh, for part four. We'll talk more. I, I want to make sure they mention that. And I also want people to be able to to uh, get your book, The Real Truth. What is the website for? Um, well, it's the it's the real truth, R E E L, the real net. Or if you want to go straight to the Amazon page, it's tinyurl.com slash the real truth. Okay, fantastic. Um, and, and we will have you back again. We're going to be doing a series with Reed, and we've got a whole lot more guests coming up. But I, I, one of the things that, that uh, I want to point out in the remaining couple of minutes, uh, and I'll give you the last word, though, is, is that regardless of, of all of the counterexample or the the uh, breakthrough maverick stories that one might hear about how someone made it. One is it might be a myth, you know, steeped in PR that that is how this breakthrough happened and it has no basis in reality. And the other, it might be real, but it's a one in a in a million shot that it happened and that this is a business and that there are channels and that there are protocols. And while the business is indeed changing and there may be new hybrid forms of, of all sorts of interactions and stuff, uh, there still is an aspect of making it through the traditional channels, you know, ha- be, by representation, by by being nice, by doing the, treating the business as a business, by by you know being talented and 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 working your guts off, and and there might be some novel approaches that you can use, but but you got to be respectful of the fact that people are still entrenched in something that's been around for a long time. Change though it may, it, it hasn't been completely over you know overturned or revolutionized and and so i think a lot of people bank on on these myths or they bank on these you know one-shot wonders um instead of learning the ropes and instead of doing it the way that that would best serve them well that is something i talk about in the real truth and i think it's why it's an important book actually there are chapters on working with producer reps there are chapters on um all sorts of aspects of of getting your film distributed and what to do and what not to do. And, and most importantly, it's so competitive these days that going to f- festivals like Sundance and Cannes, it's a very professional, very high-gloss endeavor these days. You have to have your story down that you're going to tell to journalists. You can't just sort of be fumbling around for a story. You have to be able to be selling right when you hit the ground in terms of what's the story behind this. Because very often the story of how a film got made, if you think of El Mariachi, is just as important as the film itself because it frames the experience of watching the film. And also, you know, doing things the tried and true professional way, working with producer reps. I mean, all of the films that are going to Sundance that have the possibility of selling for a huge multiple, and some will always break through, they have professional representation whose job it is and who are very talented and who know all the players and know where all the bodies are buried and they know how to position a film in the marketplace, producer reps basically, they know how to sell a film and those are the people who, who filmmakers should be should be leaving that process to and they shouldn't be thinking that just because you know they've seen uh, a couple of movies that they can they can go head to head with uh, Harvey Weinstein or, or some of the more rough and tumble street fighters who are uh, today's distribution executives. I mean, they need to leave it into the hands of professionals and, you know, do things by the book, ask questions, find out how they should approach certain things and not just sort of uh, fly by the seat of their pants. That is awesome advice. Reed, we're just really out of time. Thank you. I want to wish you a happy new year. We're going to be back talking in, in, in the next month, but uh, have a fabulous holiday and uh, thank you so much. Great. It's great to be on the show, Rex. Oh, it's great to have you, and, and and I look forward to having you back real soon. Thank you, Reed. 
Uh, again, uh, thanks to Reed Martin of The Real Truth. Uh, I, I think he's fascinating. He has a wealth of information, and I appreciate him so much sharing that with, with you and with me. Uh, we got many more exciting guests coming up in the near future, so be sure to stay tuned. And please keep sharing this website and these interviews with all your friends and your industry connections and contacts. And um, go back, really go back, and listen to each and every interview. There is a wealth of information there that you're going to want to have. So go back and, and make them uh, part of your uh, experience, part of, uh, part of the wealth of your own being. Um, you can become a member of the Rex Sykes Movie Book uh, Movie Beat Facebook group by clicking on my group link at the profile page. Everybody have a fabulous day. Make your movies. Complete your projects. Have a happy new year. And uh, remember, there are 70-some interviews there right now. There's going to be a whole lot more in 2010, but uh, make it a fabulous new year and get your projects done. Until we meet the next time, that is a wrap. <laughs>